Sagittarian Matters, I talked to cartoonist, writer, and all-around groovy person, Mimi Pond. Stay tuned. Mimi Pond is the author of the award-winning graphic novel, Over Easy, and the upcoming, The Customer is Always Wrong, Withdrawn and Quarterly. Mimi has purple hair, she wrote the first episode of The Simpsons, an episode of PB's Playhouse, and even some designing women. What more could you want? I was so happy to have her in my Los Angeles living room for this talk with producer Ponyo in the control booth. Enjoy my talk with Mimi Pond. There, there was this insistence that if you're into comics then you must have an opinion about superhero comics. Uh, and my opinion is I don't give a fuck about superheroes. They, they mean nothing to me. I never read superhero comics. Marvel, DC, all that stuff, I don't care. I don't have to care. Yeah. It's weird. It's almost like if you're like, I like novels, and someone's like, oh, do you like Dean Koontz novels? And you're like, yeah. <laughs> that's just not the kind of novel exactly. I like. Exactly. Exactly. It's like, and it's like all the graphic novels get shoved in onto the same shelf in the bookstores with all the DC and Marvel stuff. You know, like The Incredible Hulk is next to Fun Home, and you're like, mm, no, is <laughs> you know, is is Pride and Prejudice next to uh, uh, Danielle Steele on the bookshelf in the bookstore? I don't think so. I hope not. Well, so you, you're a woman. I am, in fact. You're a woman, I'm seeing. I am, I am understanding. How does it, does it feel different to be a woman in comics now than when you started? Yeah, it does. I mean, there's so many more women than there used to be. It used to be like, um, like a, an all-girl jazz orchestra from the 1930s. It's like a novelty act. And you kind of wrote in on that. It's like, y yeah, you, you let me in the, the, the club, sure, whatever works. Okay, fine, I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I'm here as a juggler. <laughs> and now it's it's like there's just so much. It's just really exploded. So And there's a lot of really great stuff out there. There's a lot of garbage out there, too. Um, I have to mention, we have to get out of the way because it's just incredible that you did write the first episode of The Simpsons. I'm sure you're tired of talking about this. But for my listeners who don't know. Well, that's the part where I get to be the turd in the punch bowl. Be the turd. <laughs> because it it wasn't a fun experience for me and and I only, I was the only girl in the room and they didn't want girls in the room at all and I didn't get to write any more episodes cuz they didn't want any women around. Sam Simon was going through a divorce and he didn't want women around and there weren't women on staff at the Simpsons for the first like I don't know 4 or 5 years and actually it's only a handful of women have written episodes and so um, you know, I got thrown off the moving gravy train. I w I'm sure I was just as qualified to write scripts as any young, you know, male writer who was hired instead of me was. Um, I'm not sure I completely uh, regret not having that experience. Um, 
because I went on to do other things and I had children that I was able to raise at home instead of handing them off to a full-time nanny because that's what it takes to have a job like that. Um, it's different. I mean, I would have been a lot richer, but I don't know that I would have necessarily been happier. And I don't know if I ever would have gotten to finally uh, create the graphic novel that's been inside of me all these years. So there's that. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that graphic novel exists. Thanks. Okay. Actually. When I was looking, I was, so I was doing more research cause I was like, I know Mimi, but what else is there to know? And I mean, of course you also had a hand in Pee Wee's Playhouse. Well, just a tiny, a finger. You wrote some episodes. <laughs> that bad. I wrote one episode. With... You had a finger in Pee Wee's Playhouse. <laughs> I would love to have a finger in Pee Wee's Playhouse. I'm not even sure what that means, but. No, I wrote one episode with, with uh, Lynn Stewart, who was Miss Yvonne. And I think that's really what ruined me for writing for television was that that was the first thing I ever wrote um, for television. And um, we wrote this episode called <clears throat> Reborella, where... Reba, the male lady, is going to go on a date with Derek, the fireman, and she's really worried about making the right impression. So Miss Yvonne makes her over to look exactly like Miss Yvonne. Sounds great. And we had such fun writing it. And here's what they did. They took our script and they shot it. <laughs> and that never happens. You know, every every single other script ever shot for any show on television is completely taken apart and reassembled by a writing staff who, you know, add and subtract jokes and add and subtract characters. And, you know, at the end of the, uh, of, of the process, if you're lucky, you get credit for that, that thing that you originally wrote, but it may have been completely changed by everyone else. Yeah. And that's just the way it works. It's very collaborative. But they took our script and they just shot it. So you were like, great. TV's yeah, great. This is, this is great. easy. This is easy. <laughs> Thanks for the check. There's my idea on TV. Perfect. And, and Lynn was a wonderful writing partner. She's, and she's just a delightful human being. And it was, yeah, it was a great experience. And my, so my husband, Wayne White, was a production designer and a puppeteer on the show. So, um, you know, it wasn't, I mean, I, I got to go hang around the set and stuff. But I, you know, that was the extent of my participation. Did you have a favorite puppet or character? Mm. Let's see. Well, um the the um the beatnik puppets, Dirty Dog and Shicky Baby and Cool Cat were pretty great. But then of course there's Roger the Monster, who was wonderful. Oh the one the one eye? Yeah. The eyeball? One eye, oh, he was cool. That was Wayne was inside of that hopping really? around. Yeah. That oh was my god. Very, very uncomfortable. <laughs> And uh, did you and, fall in love with him all over again? Yeah, he was also Mr. Kite. Rain, Pee Wee. <laughs> I really like doing a Terry impression and be like Pee Wee, <laughs> play with me. Yeah, that was that was great too. George McGrath was was um, Terry and the, the Countess the Cow. Um, and there was there was an episode where um, I think it was a Christmas episode because they had all these cameos by famous people. So Zsa Zsa Gabor came on to and had a scene with Countess, and she was so incapable of delivering lines that, that they cut her down to, like, Hello, Countess! <laughs> and goodbye, Countess! <laughs> and that was about it, because she just couldn't deliver the lines. Uh, Countess did all the heavy lifting? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can't even remember what her voice sounds. Her voice sounds oh, kind of like... it was kind of like that, kind of uh, regal. <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea of the two of them together. Yeah. And if you add Miss Piggy to the mix, it seems like a really awkward collection of women that have something in common you know miss piggy always bugged me tell me why because she's she's like one of the few female muppet characters 
and she's she's just like a bitch. Yeah. And it's like it just seems really sexist. Cuz she's self she's powerful but then she's so self-absorbed. Yeah. It's yeah. like a yeah, interpretation and, of what a powerful woman right, is to men. Kermit's just trying to get away from her. Yeah. I want to know why he loves her. I wanted there to be an episode where he really she reminds me of, of an ex-sister in love. <laughs> I'm sorry. Does she know karate? <laughs> no, but she was kind of big all over, like like Miss Piggy, and she liked to get her hair blow, blown out and liked to get manicures and was kind of vain and fluffy. And <laughs> Where is the difference between that kind of person and, like, a Miss Yvonne? Well, Miss Yvonne is different. I mean, Miss Yvonne is, is self-absorbed, but she's essentially very sweet. Um she just, you know, she has, she's, she's not, she's not calculate. I don't think Miss Yvonne was ever calculating. No. She just liked being pretty. I mean, she's, yeah. you know, she, she's like a, a woman as perceived by, by Pee Wee Herman. So it does, there's not a lot of depth there, but, um, actually Lynn Stewart and I also wanted to do a book. We did a book proposal for a book called Miss Yvonne's Guide to Womanhood, which was going to be like a par, par, a parody of, um, you know, uh, all those those horrible 50s and 60s books uh, for women about, you know, how to, you know, meet your husband at the front door dressed in, wrapped in saran wrap and holding a martini and like how if you had a failing marriage, it was obviously your fault because mm-hmm. you weren't being woman enough. <laughs> and we, we had such a good time writing the proposal. And of course, Paul Rubens wanted like 90% of what we would get from the book because he owned all the characters oh. so we did not proceed with that you were like so we could do this book for a couple of years and then get 10 yep. percent that we split in between us yep. sounds good pretty much yeah yeah i had a moment maybe 15 years ago where i no maybe when i was in high school when i was like when i decided i was like i think missy vaughn and kate pearson are the same person I was like, I think the I think the lady from the B fifty twos is Miss Yvonne, and then I looked it up, and I was like, that is incorrect, <laughs> that is incorrect. But they both just have something that imprinted on me, mm-hmm. like a duckling at a young age, where I was like, yeah, I'll follow you. And Lynn Stewart is just a, a wonderful actress, and a, uh, you know, she, they're all from the groundlings. So um, her her improvising skills are are just spectacular, and she's just her instincts are so deeply wonderfully weird that it's always a pleasure to see her work no matter what she does mm, i'd like to see her do something well she's been on it's always sunny in philadelphia oh yeah uh, for a long time and um just here and there and she's just she's just so much fun i forgot i i came around the bend but when i was looking on wikipedia the thing i didn't know so i knew about pb's playhouse which i thought was incredible i knew about the simpsons which i just thought was incredible Despite the turd in the punch bowl part, which, you know, sexism. Um, but I didn't, did you write for Designing Women? I did. Is I that was, true? I, I was there for about three months when my son, like from the time he was three months old till he was six months old. And so I was, they they were cool with me bringing him to work with the nanny because they were trying to be all cool and feminist and stuff. But Linda Bloodworth, who created the show, was it was 1992. She was off winning the election for Bill Clinton. Where are you now? We need you. <laughs> um, and 
yeah, where is she now? I don't even know. Anyway, um, they, the, the inmates were running the asylum. I mean, <clears throat> they were making some strange decisions about wh- the direction they were taking the show in. Um, Delta Burke was gone, and um, Charlene, that character, I can't remember her name, the actress, was gone. And um, I was, on top of that, I was a new mother. I wasn't getting any sleep. I'd never worked on a TV show before on staff. Um, I was having a hard time coming up with ideas because I was so sleep deprived. Nobody seemed to really want to be there anymore. It was in its like last dying season. You'd like I'd come up with like ten ideas, and they'd say, "No, we did that in season three. We did that in season four. Uh, we can't do that <clears throat> because the network doesn't like Jan Hooks, who was on the show at the time." Oh my god! You know, uh, they, she was on the show, but the network didn't like her. So, and she was a brilliant. Um, you know, she was uh, famously in in. Pee-wee's Big Adventure as the tour guide at the Alamo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. no basement at the Alamo. <laughs> nice. <laughs> she was wonderful. And um, it just was like, a, it was a it was a wrong place in the wrong time for, for me yeah. to be there. And uh, it kind of put me off actually writing for television. Because it's a kind of, especially at that point in my life, because I was just starting a family. And, you know, when you, you work on a TV show, they pay you a tremendous amount of money and then they own you and they want you to be there from like you know they would saunter in at like 10 a.m and then they'd be there till midnight or two and i couldn't i couldn't work like that then yeah you know i just couldn't it just was a bad match all the way around i just didn't want it that badly you know yeah. i mean i i just didn't care <laughs> enough yeah. yeah to do that um somebody asked me an advice question this week that I answered with another guest, but we were both uh, grossly un... Well, we, it was a question about somebody just having a kid and feeling isolated because a lot of their friends that didn't have kids who were their friends before kind of dropped off and then they didn't really identify with other like mom culture. They're like, I don't drink coffee. You know, I don't drink alcohol. I don't like a lot of things that mom's like. How do I get out of my isolation? And I, we did our best, but neither of us were mothers. And I was like, well, good luck. And it is, It's really hard. It's really hard unless you happen to fall into a group of people that you feel really comfortable with. And if you can, that's really wonderful. But uh, my husband and I felt the same way. We, Our kids went to the JCC preschool right up the block from you here. And it was a great school and wonderful school, wonderful teachers, and a circle of parents that we just didn't really warm to and I tried to for a long time I was like trying to convince myself that it was okay and then like years later I was like I hate these people (laughs) and Wayne's like I told you all along I was like I was just trying to go along and honestly it's like you have kids and you find yourself having to socialize with people that you would normally cross the street to avoid I think about that a lot when I think about the idea of having kids I mean, the kids are great. Loved yeah. having the kids. Loved being a mother. Uh, still enjoy being a mother from, you know, my kids are grown. And now it's like, you're suffering? That's good, honey. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. Um, but, God, it's really hard unless you find like-minded people that you feel comfortable with. There were, like, I, I like two or three different parents that we were comfortable with. And everyone else was just like a... <laughs> How did you find them? Well, I mean, they 
there were just happened to be the only other people whose kids um, were our kids' friends who we actually liked. So it was just it's just luck, you know. It's nothing else. Mm-hmm. I mean, now, I mean, this was pre-internet, so now maybe there's hope, but yeah. I don't, I don't know. It was all, you know, pre that kind of thing. So it's just a matter of dumb luck. I, it's it's hard. It's, parenthood is is really hard and really rewarding ultimately uh, if you're lucky. Um, but it, there there are big stretches of loneliness and alienation and, and just boredom, you know, like you, your toddlers. Actually, I feel jealous of people now who can like share incredible things their kids have done on, on Facebook. Cause I mean, my kids would say the funniest stuff and there was no, there was no way to like get it out there and like make people appreciate just how wacky it was. I did, I did do some humor essays for um, public radio here for KPCC in Pasadena that, that I um, did on air uh, a few times. So it was, I, I have a trove of, of pieces that I have written about things my kids did to, to go back to, but um, it, it's, it's fun to, to watch, to read other people talk about their kids and take pictures of their kids. Yeah. Now, I mean, I just posted a picture on Mother's Day of my my infant daughter in her high chair, completely covered with her face is completely covered with icing from from cake from her birthday. <laughs> it's She's just like a little wild animal that belongs to you. <laughs> it's just fun. I mean, they're really funny. Kids are really funny. They're hilarious. And then there's long stretches of like boredom and and like it's like it's like living with a a. A crazy person who's also drunk, <laughs> <laughs> and just making sure they don't kill themselves yeah. all the time. Yeah. What do you What do you recommend for people whose friends are just having kids to like reach out? Oh man. Or uh, yeah, tr- you know, just try to try to find people that you can really connect with on a personal level. Um, whose parenting skills you you respect? That's the other thing. It's like I. I was friends with with a couple people who I and then I realized I really didn't like their parenting style and it was hard for me to stay friends with them because I felt so judgmental and I felt like uh, a hypocrite being friends with them when I really felt like the way they parented was not right. Yeah, that that makes sense. You did a book called Over Easy. I did. And now you've just completed the sequel. Yes, The Customer is Always Wrong. The Customer is Always Wrong. What can you tell me about Over Easy and The Customer is Always Wrong? Well, um, they're both the story of my uh, waitressing career in Oakland in the late 70s at a restaurant where um, the manager was basically hiring people on the basis of a joke or a dream. That's how you got the job. Uh, you told him a joke or a dream. So it was like he was casting his own uh, anarchic, surreal opera. Do you remember your joke? Oh, yeah. It was, uh, why did God give women legs so they wouldn't leave snail trails? Which was completely gross. Yeah. Got me the job. <laughs> I really admire that you told that joke that young. <laughs> I was, yeah, I was kind of a, uh outlier for, for gross gross humor from women there wasn't women weren't doing that kind of thing and the response was either 
you know, it was either like uh, really positive or really negative. It's like, how, how could you be so disgusting? I was like, it's easy. <laughs> Sometimes I find that I get in a little too deep if I mention something like that in a group full of guys that are like, oh, you're cool like that? And then they kind of take it a little bit further than I'm like, oh, wait, wait, reel it in, reel it in, reel yeah, it in. Yeah, yeah. Or, or uh, oh, like um, someone I know on Facebook posted a, a vintage picture of a waitress, which, of course, I loved. And I liked it and I made some comment about it. And then some guy came along and was like, yeah, uh, I'd like to get into her, her waitress uniform. It was like all just skeevy. And I was like, really, do you have to be like that? It's like, you know... And then it turned into this giant, horrible, sexist thread of these guys, like, arguing about why they have the right to, like, basically, their male gaze trumps, so to speak, anything else that, that any other opinion that anyone could have about a picture of a, a waitress from the 1940s. A woman doing her job, yeah. wearing the thing she has to wear to do and, her job. And smiling. I mean, it's not like a sexy little, like, yeah. you know, cheesy modern like sexy waitress uniform for halloween it was yeah. just a cute waitress uniform and she's happy and young and smiling and they're like just like put this whole like like yeah you know basically expressing the, the idea that that they'd want to jizz all over her. <laughs> you know not in so many words but yeah. in so many words you're like and, keep, keep that in your head that's the and, thing that we then, say to ourselves kept, you're like going you know no this is you know like keep your keep keep that stuff to yourself and and then like they're arguing with me and then one of them pops up and says like hey wait a minute no Mimi Pond's cool she's a cartoonist I'm like oh gosh thanks like it's not <laughs> enough she's cool that way yeah oh <laughs> she, have you heard of our crummy's also a cartoonist it's basically the same and I, I, would, I was like no I've just have to excuse myself from this thread <laughs> oh no yeah I can't really jump I've had to make some rules for myself about jumping into Facebook phrase yeah no it's not good. It gets bad fast. But, okay, so that was your first book was all about your adventures as a waitress at Mama's Royal yes. Cafe in, in Oakland. In Oakland. And uh, the, the the books that I have written about them are fictionalized. They are, it is pure fiction. They, It is a story, as they say, inspired by true life events, but it's fiction through and through. Um some characters are inspired by real people. Some some characters are uh, amalgams of uh, many different people. Uh, there were so many people that worked there, so many great characters. It was hard to include them all. It would have been like a, a Russian novel. Uh, so, you know, like 10 fry cooks got condensed down to three fry cooks and 25 waitresses got condensed down to like four waitresses. And... Uh, it's just the way it had to be to tell. I mean, I I really wanted to try to get across the the emotional truth of that time and place rather than the literal truth, which just would have been. And then, and then, and yeah. then. I mean, I'm, I wasn't writing a, a memoir. I mean, a memoir per se or a a biography of anyone in particular. I was just trying to tell a story of what it felt like to be there then, mm -hmm. which is very different than now. I mean, that you know, like, of course, sexism was rampant and everyone's all grab assy all the time. But we were all young and grab assy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was the late 70s. AIDS hadn't come along with uh, there was lots of, of drugs around and everyone wanted to fuck. And 
actually I had already I already made the rule for myself not to have sex with my coworkers because I liked working there too much, but everyone else was like it was just a a, a sexual uh, square dance dosey do. Did everybody have VD? Oddly, no. Weird. Yeah, I don't know. I I didn't really hear that much about VD huh. back then. Well, of course there was there was chlamydia and there was um, genital warts. <laughs> So yeah, there was that, but like, like VD per se. Um, oh, of course I. Well, um, no, never mind. <laughs> You're like I did bring crabs into your house today. I hope you I don't mind. Crabs, but I don't remember that. You know, and and um, you know, if you got an abortion, you didn't get judged for it. It was just a thing. You know, like unlike now, where you know. It's just like completely ridiculous. I mean, it's nobody's business but your own. And and the idea that that society wants to judge you for it is completely unfair because if men could get pregnant, you know, there would have there would have been a solution to this problem a long time ago and no one would blink an eye about it. No. Yeah. And so it was I mean, sex was was casual and Really, nobody gave it that much thought. Yeah, and the, and surprisingly, the whole generation didn't go to hell or right. No, I mean, in some ways, I, more it was it wasn't the sex; it was the drugs that led people down these horrible rabbit holes that took them years to come out of if they came out at all. So there was a, a an enormous uh, enormous consequences from from rampant drug use, where which started out with like pot and then. Uh, speed and coke and then uh someone decided to introduce uh smokable heroin persian heroin into the mix and with and people were telling themselves like well you can't get hooked if you're just smoking it and i'm like even i as a you know, naive as i was was like <laughs> what it's heroin yeah it's heroin and it's really bad and um you know sadly there were enough directionless people there who drifted into that. Um, and with Coke, Coke was really insidious because Coke was one of those things that that before the 60s had had been pretty deep underground. And, and in the 60s and 70s, musicians started dabbling in cocaine because it seemed like a cool 1920s, 30s jazz musician thing to do. Mm. And it just, it, it was, it, you know, it just, Coke is just an, a complete asshole drug and it makes you into an asshole and it makes you lie to yourself. And it's, it's, you know, it's like 15 minutes of thinking you're like the the coolest person in the, in the world. And then you like come down and you go, oh, I, I'm horrible. I need to do more Coke. <laughs> and it's just dumb. And it's, and at the time, I don't know what it is now, but at the time it was really expensive and people were spending their, you know, their entire week's pay on, on cocaine. It was, it was bananas. I don't the, think thing, I... the other thing that was made it dangerous was like back then it was so cheap to live. You know, your rent was so cheap that you, you had a lot of extra spending money for things like drugs. And if you work in a restaurant and this happens a lot in restaurants, you, you know, your, your tips are in cash. So you've got all this cash going through your hands all the time and you're young and stupid and you go, I have money. I'm going to buy drugs instead of like getting a paycheck and going, I'm going to put this in the bank. 
Yeah. Because I need to pay my bills with this. Right. Well, and then if you have a job where you get tips, you know that that stuff's covered by your paycheck. Right. So then the tips, you're just like, woohoo, yeah. whatever you want to yeah. do. Yeah, it's idiocy. <laughs> Well, so what happens in the second book? Well, it gets darker. Because of the drugs? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Like what? Well, I'm not going to tell you. you. I mean, you don't have to spoil it. Don't spoil Uh, it. No, there's a, yeah, there's a, uh, there's lots of consequences to the drugs. Oh, wow. How long is the second book? It's 400 and something pages. I've lost track. Oh, God. Yeah. How long did that take you to draw? It seemed like you drew it fast. Well, yeah, it was faster because I my, my children were out of the house, and and I could finally devote all my time to only doing that. I, like, put everything else down. So that I wasn't was no longer juggling uh, raising children and taking people to and from places and making sure they had this and that and managing the house and all that. I just had the book to do. So of course it went faster. How long did it take you to draw? Um, well, I mean, I was starting on it. Um, let's see, I guess I started on it like by the fall of 2013 and I was finished, uh, by the fall of 2016. So three years. I feel like that's really fast. Yeah. Yeah. How are you, how long can you draw in a day? Uh, you know, Eight, eight hours, probably max. Mm-hmm. It's really pushing it. How are your hands and arms and shoulders? Uh, they're all right. I feel like after drawing, like, I can do, like, like six hours is, like, whoa, woof. But um, I have to do all kinds of, you know, like, stretching and special supplements and wrist brace and this and that and yeah. the other because I just, I, I, it's hard on the body. Yeah, um, I, I, I could. I mean, it could be less. But sometimes it just feels like it's just overwhelming, and you have to. I mean, it. I think I can draw longer than I can, like um, when I'm doing roughs. That's really harder because you're having to make it all up from scratch. And then once you get to a state where you have a rough to look at and you can proceed to the finished drawing. You've already thought about like what you're going to put in the background and you know, all Mm -hmm. those, all those decisions you have to make for every panel. What, what direction are they facing now? Is it from this angle or that angle? How do I draw uh, this room from that angle? And if I turn it around this way, what does it look like from the other angle? And I have to stay consistent. So I have to remember that there's that picture frame in the corner and that umbrella stand or, you know, whatever is there. Um, and, and I was drawing the surroundings, the restaurant itself, the interior of the restaurant, I could draw in my sleep now from every angle. But once you go out on the street and you're drawing like a street scene with different buildings and architecture, I'm like, Oh, kill me now, please. I got really excited for the inking phase because like writing, like the actual thumbnail, cause I thumbnail and then pencil, but the thumbnailing, I have to be it's so precious yeah. like it has to be quiet and i have yeah. to have mental space yeah. and you can't have i can't have music or anything no, on. nothing that frustrates do me you, do you write a script before you uh start drawing no or? sometimes i'll do like writing exercises with myself uh-huh. where i will do like a linda berry style like memory exercise of just describing everything that's around me and happening 
around a particular theme or person, or I'll just free write on them. And sometimes I'll call from that good lines and stuff. Uh But generally I would thumbnail directly like little almost stick figure versions of my people. Because for me, like that part is getting like the wording and the facial expressions is the general posing and acting down. But then the pencil phase is then when after those have been edited a little bit is when I add all the shitty like having to look at backgrounds and cars and angles and yeah, I shitty because I don't like drawing that stuff. I'll I'll write a script without uh, drawings because I can already see it in my head. But but writing writing the each caption for each panel and each word balloon becomes an exercise in like really paring it down. And I I try not to work on a computer because I just I just keep typing and typing and I'm like it gets way too wordy. And you want it to yeah. distill it down because you don't want a super wordy caption and you don't want people talking too much. You want to just, you know, get it down to its essence because nobody wants to read a huge long caption. No, you know, it's not, I mean, it's, it's like voiceovers in movies should be, you know, quick and succinct. I mean, uh, there's a, there's a lot of argument about whether voiceovers belong in movies. And I think Marty Scorsese does it really well in movies like Goodfellas, where there's there's a voiceover narrative telling you what's what's happening. So I think it you know it's a it's a given in comics. It's not so much in movies where it's show don't tell. But I think you should always show more than you tell anyway. I try to tell this to students because I have a lot of students at script and they use the computer. And there's a lot, a lot of words. And I'm just like, I just want you to write it and feel how it feels to fit that in a panel. Yeah. And see how much you can fit in a panel comfortably. Like, don't... Sometimes they'll, like, put a little, like, note. Like, they'll be, like... The, they'll draw a panel, like a thumbnail panel of two people. And then it, there'll be a speech bubble that's blank. And it'll say, like, you know, asterisk one. And then there's, like, a separate page that goes with it that has, like, these long-ass sentences that go yeah, with the no. asterisks. And I'm like, how are you going to fit that in there? Yeah, no. You, I mean, you just you you have to learn to edit yourself and reduce, 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 reduce. It's like that's a reason three minute song, pop songs are so popular because they reduce things down to their essence and the that you best know parts. Yeah. Um, and so then, yeah. So then I'll I'll I just like and I just write them in pencil on a piece of typing paper. You know, number the panels and like the caption and the and the the dialogue and then. Then I go back and do roughs, and I'll sometimes in the roughs I'll just to keep the momentum going. I I won't even fill in the backgrounds because then I'd get just get hung up in like the details of like how do I draw that car from that end? Oh shit! I have to draw a car. <laughs> I better Google a car. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing now that's, I mean, it used to be in the olden days that artists and illustrators would have to keep whole whole um, libraries of files of images, like birds. I mean, you, there's picture files still at, at public libraries. You can go look at, like, I need a picture of a Baltimore Oriole. I need a picture of a, of a Frank Lloyd Wright house from 1951 or whatever specific thing. And now you just go on, on Google and, and, and then Google Street View. Yeah is the greatest. That's how I drew a lot of, draw a lot of streets in yeah. my books now. And now you could see from different angles. Yeah. It's perfect. It's perfect. It's, it's like a, it's a genius. Um, what, what is your least favorite thing to draw? I, what is my least favorite thing to draw? 
I'm better at cars now. That used to be my least favorite thing. I know, thing. me too. Um, you know what? In Fetch, there's a part where I had to draw Toys R Us, mm-hmm. where I worked. And I just, like, I don't even know if listeners can just, like, take a minute and try to imagine every fucking thing that's at a Toys R Us. Like, all the different shelves and the different, like, layers of shelves uh-huh. and the foreground and the background. How many things are on each shelf? And then, like, trying to imagine all the things yeah. that are on each shelf. It used to be that streets, like, street views were my least favorite or cars. But currently, having just come off of having... I saved that, like, PB with the snakes at the pet shop. I saved that Toys R Us scene for till the very end. <laughs> I just kept being like, what else can I draw? Is there literally anything else I can draw besides you know, the, the thing is, Toys R Us? When you're, when you're doing something like that, a scene that involves a lot of details, you have to, like, st- I have to, I'm you, I have to stop myself and, and hit myself over the head and say, stop being so literal. There's, there's got to be a way to shorthand this. Yeah. You know, and, <laughs> and that's the thing that you have to tell yourself to keep from losing your mind. Um, it's the same with, with like crowd scenes. Like how, how am I going to draw all those people and all those different expressions and what are they all wearing? And everyone has to mm-hmm. be wearing. And Mimi, I have so many crowd scenes in this book. It's suicide worthy. I mean, it's really intense. I mean, it helps to look at other people's work and see how they manage things too. And then you go, well, you don't have to, to do the crowd scene in every single panel that way. That could just be like uh, silhouettes behind the people who are talking you don't have to drive yourself completely mad with drawing every last person's lapel and button (laughs) well it's like that wally wood thing you know about you know if you can what you know like if you can copy it like basically it's what is it that huge page about about drawing things from different angles and mixing it up it's really helpful yeah his, uh, well, so I show students like, the 22 panels that always work. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, these aren't just tropes. These are because this is a person like this saved his life until he killed himself. Like this is like. <laughs> the, Where are we But <laughs> just like as an art form, it's very tedious and it gets a little. Like if I look at Joe Sacco's work, like he's mm-hmm. a psycho. Like yeah. looking at And he's one how, of my idols. And I don't know how he gets all that done in time for his news to be newsworthy anymore. I mean, I was I did this cartoon for the New Yorker about the TCM Film Festival, and it took me three weeks. Of course. And so then, by the time it comes, out, and, then, and then they they like held onto it for another week and a half or so because of gar- White House garbage that was going on, and I was like, it's not getting any younger. <laughs> well, yeah, with journalism, comics, and stuff, I just it's I hard. Just can't. It's it's really hard to you know figure out how to. With yeah, with with tell you know telling a news story, it's I mean I think anyone who's going to be successful at that has to develop a style that they can do really fast that's still really engaging. Yeah, I did you watch Breaking Bad? No. Well, in the last season of Breaking Bad, which you know is about a meth dealer, some really scary white power guys come in, like some kind of like backwoods, like rednecky kind of like white power meth guys. Mm-hmm. And they all have like machine guns and they're really scary. And so I, I personally, like I really idolized Joe Sacco for some reason, something about like whatever OCD or compulsive feelings I have really shine when I look at his mm-hmm. work. And so in Calling Dr. Laura, there's all these pages where I over hatched and cross hatched and hatched again and cross hatched and stippled and added so much of that horrible Joe Sacco detail in the background. And then I would just gray wash over it. So it was like, why did you even, you didn't need to do that. So now when I work on comics, if I find myself getting, um, 
like anxious or impatient to wait for the gray washing process and I start over hatching in the background. I imagine those guys from Breaking Bad standing over me <laughs> with their guns being like, you sure you want to do that? You sure you really need to cross hatch like that? Well, that was, that was a good thing uh, uh, that I found out when I was desperately trying to finish this, this cartoon about the, the TCM film festivals. Like I, I was anxious to get it done. It was 37 panels and it was, lots of detail in every panel and I I kind of just like pushed myself to do it fast kind of quick and dirty to and I, it really did have the effect of, of loosening me up mm-hmm. so I and I was happy I wasn't unhappy with the end result because I was like I was like doing simple drawings and I knew I was going to do a, a watercolor wash over them and I could add in little, you know, like details on top of that with watercolor and pencil that would make it more interesting. Like I didn't have to invest everything in the line drawing underneath, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it was okay. Yeah, it was fine. And it turned out great. Yeah. Like I did yeah. When I don't follow my crazy, like this is how it has to be done steps, yeah. it's still, it's sometimes okay. Yeah. And sometimes even better. Yeah, exactly. Because it feels less labored. Uh, what advice do you have for young cartoonists? Um, don't think you're going to make any money doing it. That's valuable. Yeah. I mean, it, you'll be lucky if you do. I, if you, I think you have to be absolutely, you have to absolutely have a compulsion to tell a story in this way, that there's no other way you could tell it except by this way. And you have to love it so much. And then that love has to show through so that you do get the attention of people who want to put it somewhere or or if you're self-publishing or if you're doing a web comic on your own that somehow it it gets it gets noticed and and your profile gets raised because if you if you're like in it because you think you're going to make money well that's a laugh <laughs> um you have to do it because you you love it so much and you want it to be told this way I mean, it was like, that's why I did Over Easy and The Customer is Always Wrong, is I couldn't not tell this story. It had been inside of me for so long that it had to come out. And uh, it feels really good that it's finally out there and done and I can go on to other things. Because it was like, I spent years not doing it, thinking about, like, how was I ever going to tell this story The from the minute I went to work in this restaurant, I knew this was a story that I had to someday tell. It just lodged in my chest like that thing from from um, Alien, <laughs> you know, yes. like, had to bust out. Yeah. Um, and and I think that's. I mean, it's like when when story ideas come to me, um, it it is. I mean, it's not always. That, sometimes it's harder. Sometimes. I, I really have to thrash through, but every, you know, I'm lucky when I'm in a situation where I'm, I'm just saying to myself, I feel a cartoon coming on. I was like that at Ikea <laughs> and I did a cartoon about Ikea for the, for the New Yorker. Oh, so I have a post Trump era Ikea. How does that feel? <laughs> well, Ikea is still safe, but this is just a, a, a Trump Ikea in my imagination. Um, but it just like came on, boom! I I knew what I was going to do, and of course, IKEA the jokes write themselves. Yeah, all the the funny IKEA names. Yeah, you know, so that's easy. Yeah, I I then I had an idea. They 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 nixed this one. I, maybe it's just a little too 
too much for them, but I was like, gay Mike Pence. <laughs> of course. I mean, Mike Pence looks like, a, I mean, there's nothing about him that doesn't look like a gay man. Yeah. And, and I just imagined Mike Pence saying, I've always wanted to take a disco nap. Of course. <laughs> I mean, like, so he becomes, he becomes president and he's about to become president. And they're like, you know, hold on, hold on. You know, there's people out there saying, you know, there's, there's, there's scandals about to break. He's like, I'm going to own this. <laughs> I wish. I know. And then he's like, he's making up for lost time. So he's the kind of person I feel like who's getting a blowjob and then killing the person who gave him the blowjob, <laughs> throwing their body somewhere and then investing in some more conversion therapy for mm, other people. Probably. So your version of him sounds lovely and delightful <laughs> where he's like, work <laughs> to whoever the new vice president yeah, is. He calls everyone girlfriend. He's like, you do you girl. <laughs> We could only dream that Mimi Pond's version of Mike Pence was this way. Not to be a Seinfeld, but have you ever noticed that I never try to sell you Blue Apron on the podcast? Or that we do not disparage and bemoan trips to the post office in favor of Stamps.com? Well, it is because we have no advertisers. Zero. Producer Chris, producer Ponyo, and myself do this out of the goodness of our hearts because we like it. If you would like to tip producer Chris Sutton, who dedicates hours to this series every week, please, 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 please send your tip of $5, $10, who knows how much. That's your business via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. That is hornet, like the insect, leg, like one of his appendages, at gmail.com. If you do this, we will read your name on the podcast. Isn't that exciting? We may have advertisers someday and we'll rant and rave about free sex toys and mattresses and blue apron and whatever. But in the meantime, thank you. We appreciate your support. And I look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Producer Ponyo looks forward to it too. That was Ponyo's voice. Don't be scared. Bye. Thank you this week to Nadia Gomez, Elizabeth Greenhill, Madison Crackle, and Shoshana Wechter. Thank you for your support. We appreciate it. I was actually just listening to you on a different podcast, and you were talking about people doing drugs in the 70s, oh, and how man. that is what linked the punks and the hippies. Yeah. Yeah, it was. They, they, they really did well, the get... the 60s. Well, in the 70s. 70s. 70s, Yeah. Um, no, that's, that's what really, um, kind of brought them together that, and the, you know, of course the, the hate for disco. Oh yeah. Well, everybody hated disco. Everybody hated disco. You couldn't, you couldn't like disco and be a punk or a hippie really. Um, and they had disco record burning parties back then. I mean, not that it was like a thing you saw in the media, you know, it wasn't like anything that I actually remember happening, but you know, there'd be like. It'd be on the news, it'd be in a stadium, and there'd be people burning disco records, just like, you know, the other kind of record-burning parties people like to have when well, they hate someone, like Jerry Lee Lewis or something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what, what, what did disco represent? Everything fake and shallow and commercial and 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 mainstream, um, almost like Republican uh, mm -hmm. in a way, because it was just so, con it was like utterly conventional. Mm -hmm. So anyone conventional would have been into disco and wearing the stupid outfits that they had 
and and you know it was kind of robotic because it was the beginning of like synthesized not not the beginning of synthesizers but the beginning of like synthesized beats and synthesized tracks um you know it was all like and you know like years later we kind of rediscovered disco like some of it wasn't so bad and then uh like and you had to hate the bgs you couldn't like the bgs back then and then I don't know, about 10 years ago or so, my husband and I rediscovered the Bee Gees and we were like, oh my God, the Bee Gees, the lyrics, the harmonies, it's so beautiful. You can finally let go of yeah. the, the posturing of punk. Yeah. And then, you know, there's some other music from that era that I still really hate. So <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's good to, to, um, to change your mind and other times now. I, I always like thought about... Like Captain and Tennille and, and Debbie Boone. The fact that Debbie Boone's You Light Up My Light won as like best song over the Ramones that year at the Grammys. Oh. Was like, it just said everything. I just can't imagine the Ramones being up for a Grammy. That seems crazy to me. To think about them all at the Grammys, like a red carpet with the Ramones, yeah. and the Ramones seated, like, you know, in a convention center at a, around a table. They never they never really did get the respect they deserved. Uh, did you see that documentary about them? It's really depressing. I mean, they, they, they uh, got dicked around by record companies, and they never made the money they should have made. And then, you know, they, they started dying off, and it was all over. It was a shame, because they're like just the greatest. I mean, they kind of, they saved the seventies for me much more than the sex pistols. The Ramones had, you know, great, great tunes, great lyrics. Um, you know, they, they were like everything you wanted punk to be. Yeah. Like you could still understand the words. It wasn't like, no, 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 no. Yeah. There's something so cool about the Ramones and something about them that seems more self-destructive than outwardly destructive, which is how I feel about the sex pistols. Yeah. Yeah, and the Sex Pistols were basically just engineered by Malcolm McLaren anyway. So, you know, they were just kind of a uh, an exciting shit show. Was that the guy that was Vivian Westwood's boyfriend? Right. Because then she's always said that punk was just a fashion movement, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, I mean, they kind of engineered the whole thing, um, but then it took off on its own. I mean, I don't, I'm not, I'm no expert on punk or everything. I'm sure there's like plenty of... of uh, music nerds out there who would like go oh yeah well let me tell you something <laughs> this is where it all started man I'm, and I'm sure they're like 25 years old yeah. yeah yeah well no there's one there's ones my age too that like to consider themselves like you know giant um you know music historians and and that's the thing that put me off about like the whole rock scene anyway is like it was always guys, too, always guys telling you that you couldn't like the music you liked because you should like what they like instead, you know, and if you liked anything else, you weren't cool. And there's all this this posturing and jockeying to be the hippest person yeah. around. And, and, like, you know, who saw what band and did they see them the first time they played there? And, you know, or did they get to go backstage? And, you know, did they actually get to hang around them? All this, like, just this, you know, constant jockeying for position to be the coolest person and then um, that actually that's so nerdy yeah it's like it the nerdiest thing you could do yeah i'd like I'll, I'll, I'll go see the music and i'm tired and I'm, now i'm gonna go home it was good 
I one of my least favorite things is when I say I enjoy something, and then somebody who finds enjoyment by collecting facts starts being like, "Oh, but do you know about blah blah blah?" But like super, you know, a B side, blah blah blah. And I'm yeah. like, "No, I don't know. I don't know. I just never mind." Yeah. And then I'm just gonna go home and <laughs> yeah, listen it's to one it. Up, it's one upmanship. Yeah. Well, I mean, in comics, there's always there's a phenomena where there, in one of my because I teach comics classes, and there's always someone who's like a deep comics egghead nerd oh, yeah. fanboy generally boy fanboy person who like anything i say they'll be like um, actually and have like a just a wealth of information about something very obscure that pertains to that historically and i'm like yes sure great excellent <laughs> like it doesn't necessarily have to do with what i was saying but like great yeah but so in comics as in music it is very easy to find that kind of expert in the room yeah well, Mimi, when does your book come out? It comes out August 8th, and it will be everywhere. Bookstores, Amazon, the whole thing. Can people pre-order it now? Uh, they can, on Amazon. The it's, customer's always wrong. The customer's always wrong, drawn in quarterly. Uh, I forget what it costs. $100. No, it's like less than $30, I think. Would, would you ever... What would happen if you were a waitress right now? Uh, that would probably not be good. Um, I could still do it. You know, I'd probably be ultimately better than ever, but it would be exhausting at my age to be a waitress. I think that I would be grouchy but less angry than when I did customer service. Yeah, I I know I wouldn't put up with um, people's garbage. I mean, the, the way I put up with people's garbage back then was a really good coping skill, which was to just pretend that I was a waitress. You know, I, I didn't didn't mean that I was necessarily meant for a lifetime of servitude. I was just playing a waitress. Mm-hmm. So you're like, this is what a waitress would do. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's how I that's how I managed it back then. I was, you know, I was actually this genius subversive artist who was taking notes at every turn, and I was going to turn it into a story eventually, which I did. But at the time, it was okay to just pretend I was playing a part. Oh my god, I love that. That's such a cool and weird coping mechanism. Yeah, it was it was encouraged by our our restaurant manager, who is of course the main character, um, Laszlo Marenge. Um, he was you know he was a a subversive uh, poet who happened to be disguised as a restaurant manager. Mm-hmm. I did some brief waitressing for a secret cafe in Portland. And I would want to kill people because they would stand up to get their own coffee refills. And so then when I went to the coffee station to get people sanctioned refills, it would oh. be empty. Oh. And I would be I would be like, sit down. Just sit down. <laughs> I'll get to you. Um, but now I feel like maybe I would uh, be a little bit less angry with them, but still firm. Yes. Oh, I just looked it up. It's it's uh, $19.46 on Less Amazon. than $20. Yes, it's... Uh, I guess the list price is twenty nine ninety five. Well, it's a big ass book. It is. Let's see. How so much? you can get it for less than twenty or less than thirty. I'm sure you can pre-order it through D and Q, drawn and quarterly. Yes. Or through Amazon, or Powell's. Yes. Or anybody. And how much can people get over easy for? For sixteen dollars and ten cents. That's yeah, a savings. That is a savings. Well, Mimi Pond, thank you for being on Sagittarian Matters. It was entirely my pleasure. Thank and, you. Uh, wait, what's your sign? Leo. We love Leos here. Oh. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance by Panyo Georges. 
Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.